This is a Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, and this week we're in conversation with Paul Vallely. Uh, Now, Paul is the author of a major new book on philanthropy called Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, uh, and it's a look at the history of philanthropy in the UK and beyond, but this sort of brings the relevance of that philanthropy um, to kind of looking at contemporary issues and themes and trends in philanthropy. Before that, Paul um, has been a journalist and author for a long time, so he is a papal biographer of Pope Francis. Um, He co-wrote Bob Geldof's best-selling autobiography, Is That It? Um, He's also a senior research fellow at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester and a visiting professor in public ethics at the University of Chester. And Paul and I sat down for what you'll see is uh, quite a long uh, chat um, because we had so much to talk about. His book is uh, a very long one and covers a lot of interesting themes and topics from history and kind of current philanthropy. Uh, Obviously history of philanthropy is very much a favourite topic of mine and it was nice to have somebody to talk in detail about that with. So we talked about all kinds of things and I won't go into too much of it now because I'd want to leave enough time for the actual conversation. We talked about things like the distinction between the uh, Greco-Roman tradition of philanthropy and that that emerged from the Abrahamic religions and why that's still relevant today. Um, We talked about the the long-standing question of the relationship between charity and justice. We talked about how views on poverty uh, have shaped philanthropy over the years and uh, views on things like the difference between the deserving and the undeserving poor and whether uh, discrimination in philanthropy is one of the kind of core things that we should focus on. Um, We talked about... uh, Uh, continuity between the history of philanthropy from the classical period and the medieval period into the modern day and whether actually there's more continuity than change as we look at periods like the Reformation and the Enlightenment when uh, it's often seen as major changes taking place. Um, We talked about the relationship between philanthropy and democracy and what role philanthropy plays in a democracy and whether that's uh, broadly positive or negative. Um, We talked about the perception of philanthropists and whether philanthropy these days is seen as a good thing or a bad thing and whether critiques of philanthropy by wealthy people um, most particularly are justified or whether they're actually sort of tied up in wider views on wealth and inequality. Um, And then we talked about uh, the relationship between philanthropy and religion, which is obviously a very important part of the history of philanthropy. Religious thinking and thinking on charity and philanthropy are sort of inextricably intertwined for most of the history of philanthropy. We talked about whether religion still has relevance to philanthropy today, both in terms of how it drives it and in whether religious thinking can inform philanthropy. So without further ado, let's go into the conversation. There's lots more in it, as I'm sure you'll hear, uh, and I will be uh, back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up. Okay, great. So I'm here with Paul Vallely. Hi, Paul. Hi. Uh, and Paul, you are the author of a, a major new book on philanthropy, a, a big old book. I've got a copy of it sitting next to me on the desk at the moment uh, called Philanthropy from Aristotle to Zuckerberg, which is currently out here in the UK and shortly to, to come out in the US. Um, and that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. 
Um, maybe the best place to start is just for you to say a bit in your own words about what the what the book's about and kind of how it came about. Well, it's a broad ranging uh, survey of philanthropy from uh, uh, Aristotle to Zuckerberg. It actually starts earlier than Aristotle. It looks back into the the, the origins of giving in 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 more not prehistoric but almost prehistoric terms, uh, and then goes right up to today. It came about because I was approached by a philanthropist, Sir Trevor Pears. Uh, who was aware that there hadn't been a history of English philanthropy written for about 50 years. And he said he, he was happy to give me a research grant for a couple of years to, um, uh, to, to write a history of English philanthropy. But I swiftly realised as I began the research that you couldn't confine it to English philanthropy because philanthropy is so global nowadays. And, and also, when you, you, for your starting point, where do you start? You really have to go back to the ancient Greeks and the, and the ancient Hebrews. And so uh, the, the, the book grew like Topsy, which is why, as you say, it's, it's a big book. It, it, it's a book you can dip into uh, as well as read from, from start to finish. And, and it will also keep your door open. It certainly will. And yes, it is, it is very kind of uh, clearly structured. And so there's lots of different bits people can pick out and a mixture of uh, history and, and kind of interviews with, with philanthropists and, and uh, others uh, talking about philanthropy. Yeah, after each historical chapter, I tried to, um, uh, I, I did an, an, an interview with, with a philanthropist or a thinker on philanthropy. And, and I put that after each chapter, it's kind of in between each chapter. And it tries to bring a kind of contemporary perspective to what's been discussed in the historical bit. So it makes it feel like the, the book is, is speaking in the modern world. It's not just, you know, a, a dusty historical record. The history has, has, has relevance to, to philanthropy today. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, it feels to me having read the, the book um, already, I, I want to skim read and a proper read as well, that it it definitely has those two functions, one as a, as a kind of history of philanthropy and a, a kind of great overview of, of all of that history, but also it functions as a kind of a critique in some ways or an analysis of contemporary philanthropy. And I certainly want to kind of, and, and the one informs the other, certainly, but I want to, to kind of pick up on uh, both of those aspects of the book, particularly because it's not often I get to talk to somebody who uh, is as interested in the history of philanthropy as I am. So it's very nice for me. Um, I guess what I wanted to ask as a sort of overarching question up front um, is, is what value do you think taking a historical perspective brings to philanthropy or could bring to philanthropists or people working in the field well the history of philanthropy has been like a kind of spiral it, it, it goes forward but it also keeps going around in circles uh, and so people make the same mistakes over and over again and you can actually learn from those mistakes and 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 make sure that you don't repeat them you can also learn from from the insights that people have had in previous uh, uh, generations um, and uh, it, it's a way of of, of making um, philanthropists and, and people concerned with philanthropy a bit more self-conscious about the, the history uh, and a bit more self-conscious about what they're doing and 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 makes I think it, I'm hoping it will help people to think more deeply about what they're doing in the present world. Yeah absolutely and, and there are certainly some I think your book you know really touches on some absolutely kind of fundamental questions and themes around philanthropy and um, just to, to sort of go straight into some of those and look at some of these historical themes I think that resonate today a really interesting one for for me, I think, which goes right back to to the start in terms of the history, is is a fundamental distinction that you outline between sort of two traditions of philanthropy: one that comes sort of from the the Greco-Roman world, and then one that that em 
emerges from the sort of Abrahamic religions. Can you can you just talk a bit about what that distinction is and kind of how it gave rise to two quite separate views of what philanthropy is? Well, to the Greeks, the Greeks had this system called liturgia uh, in, in Athens. They had um, it was a duty of a rich man to uh, to contribute some way to public life. So he might be uh, expected to do something small like financing uh, the writing of a new play or, or sending a team of athletes to the uh, Olympics, or it might be something big like building a temple or even uh, a warship for, for battle. Um, and the rich co competed with one another, and it was about cementing their place in society and about cementing the social hierarchy. So it was a form of philanthropy that was essentially about the rich, uh, and it was very top down. Um, at the same time, in the same historical period, uh, in what is now Israel, the, the ancient Hebrews uh, had come up with a different kind of uh, philanthropy, and that was growing out of a religious vision. And that was that God had created the world and been generous to, to men and women, and men and women had been made in the image of God. So therefore, it was incumbent upon men and women to be as generous to one another as God had been to them. And so it was much more about community, whereas the Greek one was about society. And it was much more two-way. It wasn't top-down at all. The duty of, of, of helping uh, people in need fell upon everybody. Um, and so you've got these parallel traditions of, of, of top-down societal philanthropy and two-way community philanthropy. And they were there from the outset. And when you look at the history of philanthropy, uh, as I've done in the book, over the 2000 years, you see those two different traditions uh, interweaving with one another. Sometimes one's dominant, sometimes the other. Sometimes they uh, enrich one another, but usually they're, they're separate. And uh, they, they tell us something about modern attitudes to philanthropy too. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, I mean, it feels very timely in that, that the discussion about whether sort of overly top-down approaches to philanthropy have become problematic and whether there needs to be um, sort of mechanisms for shifting power and focusing more on giving decision-making power to to what would have traditionally been perceived as the beneficiaries, I think is a, is a very kind of um, uh, timely conversation that's happening uh, in the world of philanthropy. So I think having that historical background is really interesting. And in, in, the, in the, the Jewish tradition, one of the great medieval Jewish sages, Maimonides, he, he invented a, a, a kind of a ladder, a hierarchy of giving, and different kinds of giving were more meritorious. And the, the top of it, the best kind of giving, was to give to someone in such a way that you made them self-sufficient. So they didn't need any help anymore, and indeed that they could help others. So uh, that, 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 that gives you a kind of uh, an insight into that um, modern notion of empowering people in philanthropy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it leads me on actually to ask, because um, in the way you've outlined it there, one of the sort of differences between that um, uh, Greco-Roman uh, tradition and the, and the sort of Judeo-Christian or Abrahamic one was was is a difference between philanthropy being seen as a means to uh, entrench the kind of existing social order and one where there's actually some sort of uh, ambition to to redistribute or kind of uh, meet a, a need of justice through philanthropy. Yeah, I mean, in the, again, in the Jewish tradition, they had things like uh, Jubilee. Uh, we, we, people might remember Jubilee 2000. That notion of Jubilee uh, for the forgiveness of debts comes from uh, 
the the uh, the biblical uh, uh, Judaic tradition, and it's the idea that every seven years uh, debts uh, should be forgiven, and every uh, seven times seven years uh, you should have uh, some kind of major uh, readjustment of society in such a way as to uh, as, as to make it more harmonious, and that the 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 levels of of, of wealth inequality uh, are, are constrained in some way, and nobody's really left at the bottom. And uh, even even when you're harvesting your fields, you're supposed to leave a bit in the corner for the poor to come and 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 pick over and pick all the extra grains out themselves. And and I think you did, that's it's such a fascinating idea because I think at the moment there's a lot of focus on this the question of the relationship between charity and philanthropy and uh, and justice and whether the two actually kind of exist in opposition and whether charity is too often seen as an alternative to justice and something that kind of happens within the existing societal structures rather than addressing the kind of fundamental flaws in them. Um, I guess one thing I just wanted to ask as time went on beyond the, the kind of origins of those, it, looking maybe more towards the medieval era, do you get any sense that the, the approaches in the kind of Judeo-Christian tradition actually took on some of those elements of, of the Greco-Roman one in the sense that it, it seems as though in that period, although there was a lot of philanthropy and charity going on, it was related to a view of wealth distribution where they weren't fundamentally trying to kind of re, re, redress that balance through philanthropy because they were seen as a sort of established order of wealth and that inequality was perhaps something that kind of reflected the natural order, but that charity was something that those with wealth had to do in recognition of the, the blessing that they'd received from God. But but it seems to me that's that's different to what you see at the start in that Jewish tradition, which is seems more in line with kind of modern notions of social justice and, and redistribution. Is there any sense that, that we kind of see that blurring over time? Uh, yeah, and there's a tension between those two, and those two uh, carried on throughout uh, the Middle Ages. And we talk about the Middle Ages very blithely, but you have, what you have to remember is there were a thousand years of them from the 4th century to the 14th century. This model um, obtained in that, and there was a debate within it, and the book sets out the debate between uh, people who have the social justice idea uh, and people who, especially as the Middle Ages progress and society becomes wealthy with, with wealth, more wealthy with trade and, and the growth of mercantilism and, and so forth, uh, that the, the, the church thinkers began to have to accommodate themselves to the fact that they were living in a society where where there was large amounts of wealth being produced and how, how how do you live with that? And some of them went back to the social justice model and some of them made the kind of accommodation that you've, you've uh, just, just described. But overarching within it all was, uh, because it was a, a, a theologically uh, driven society, uh, I mean, obviously, it was it was pretty tough to be a, a serf in, in the Middle Ages, uh, materially speaking. But even within that context, there was this this theological notion that uh, everybody was kind of linked to God in some way, um, the mystical body of, of Christ, the, the, the medievals called it. And it was the idea that, it, that there was a kind of cosmic unity. We were all related to God and we were all related to one another. So although the, the, the rich had a duty to to give to the poor, but the poor also had a duty to pray for the rich, because the idea in those days was that 
God listened to the prayers of the poor more than he did the rich. And so if the, if the poor were praying for the rich, uh, the, the, then God would listen to what, what the needs of the rich were more. So there was a kind of two way about that, too. There was a reciprocity about it. And you still got, you know, kings in, in the Middle Ages, um, like Louis IX in France, uh, in like the 13th century, they're still washing the feet of the poor. So there is still that notion of um, mutuality about it, which, which you see in some modern kinds of philanthropy, but which was really driven out of uh, philanthropy after, the, after the, the Black Death and the, uh, the changes in the, the demography and the uh, economy of, of Europe. Uh, I mean, we're in a pandemic now. and we, we should have some appreciation of how disruptive it can be the Black Death, there was uh, between a third and half of the entire population of Europe was wiped out. And obviously that has huge economic uh, changes. And, and, and one of them was that uh, uh, the, the, uh, there was a shift in attitude towards the poor, whereas the poor had been treated as, as objects of, uh, of pity and, and, and with sympathy before. They were now regarded with some hostility. There were you know, loads of beggars uh, uh, um, swarming through Europe and... Um, the, uh, the the rich tended to see the poor as as a threat to the social order. They were they, they you know in insurrection rebellion might grow amongst uh, these vagabond beggars. So you start to get the Elizabethan poor law and a clamp down on it. And then that goes on. You know there were poor laws right through to the Victorian era. And uh, you know Andrew Carnegie followed that with his notion of um, uh, he, he was very keen on uh, um, Herbert Spencer's social Darwinism, Spencer applied Darwin's theories of evolution to human society and concluded that rich people uh, must be um, morally superior and innately better than poor people. So people like Carnegie developed their philanthropy on that model. So what I'm saying is that from the shift from the Black Death right through to Carnegie, you've got um, uh, an increased dominance of this Greco-Roman uh, idea of, of philanthropy as a form of social cement or social control. Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting. I, I, one of the things I, I really like about the book, I think, is the the emphasis on the the elements of sort of continuity from the classical world through the, the medieval period um, right through to the, to the modern day, because I think it sort of brings to light that um, all of these themes have been there and at different times, some of them have been dominant and, and other times they've been sort of recessive, but they're, they're always there. These are quite sort of fundamental questions that people always ask about charity and philanthropy. Yeah, you look at an issue like the, you know, the distinction between the deserving and the undeserving mm. poor. We think that's a kind of newish issue going back to maybe Victorian times, but it was there in the Middle Ages. Uh, it was the, the theologians debated that they had hierarchies of who you should give to and who you, who you could uh, be got you, know, you you didn't have to give to. Then you get the, the all these poor laws that I've talked about, and it goes through into the kind of moralizing attitude of the Victorians. So uh, an issue like that, uh, as you say, ebbs and flows through the history, and you can. Uh, if you look at how the thinking developed in the Middle Ages on the deserving and the undeserving poor, that might tell you something about how we should regard, you know, the kind of people we often call the underclass in, in society today. Um, and one thing in the book in terms of that continuity that, um, that I found really interesting is you sort of push back on um, a... Uh, a kind of standard narrative within the history of philanthropy for anybody who kind of reads enough of the history of philanthropy to be aware of it about the impact of the reformation in particular which i think has been positioned as a kind of inflection point at which there was a switch away from 
an old model of charity towards the kind of birth of modern philanthropy. And you were sort of making the point, and I think you've touched on it there, that actually we need to look to other factors like the Black Death and actually the kind of changes in in approaches to mercantilism and things that to see that a lot of the the elements of that were already in place. Do you, do you think there is anything particular about the Reformation that is it's sort of important in terms of understanding the, the development of philanthropy, even if it's not the, the one that is put forward in that standard narrative? Yeah, well, the, stand, the standard notion is, that, and this was really a, a bit of Protestant spin after the Reformation mm. by people who wanted to kind of uh, uh, justify themselves and, and do down their opponents. Uh, uh, they would, they, a lot of the uh, Protestants made out that Catholic charity through the Middle Ages was was outmoded and uh, haphazard, and that uh, Protestant theology had paved the way for a new kind of uh, of philanthropy, which is more scientific and uh, and more and more concerned with the deserving and the undeserving poor. Uh, as I've just explained, that you know that's not true. That, that you go back, you can find that in 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 uh, in the early in the in the Roman times and uh, as well as in the Middle Ages. But uh, um, I mean, the big change at the Reformation was the dissolution of the monasteries. And what the book shows is that, uh, contrary to a lot of uh, Reformation propaganda, post-Reformation propaganda, um, Catholic charity through the Middle Ages was 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 very effective, and the monasteries um, did did a huge amount to uh, to to alleviate poverty uh, in, in in a fairly not a systematic way, but in in a fairly extensive way. And uh, medical historian Roy Porter calls uh, uh, the uh, dissolution of the monasteries a rapacious asset stripping, which is carried out in the name of religious reform, but which brought, brought about a major setback for healthcare for the poor. So um, the, 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 the changes which came in philanthropy, which were that the church control of it was taken away from the church uh, or transferred from the church to the growing middle classes, the merchant classes. That happened about 100 years before the Reformation, uh, and that was an important uh, development, but it was one which grew out of the economic changes after the Black Death. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. I think absolutely in terms of the, the loss of the existing infrastructure of, of charity that had been there in terms of kind of medieval uh, Catholic uh, church, it, even even if it's only that factor, that sort of negative <laughs> impact on philanthropy seems to me a you know very, very important one. Yeah, and it wasn't just the monasteries. There were the medieval guilds and confraternities, and uh, you know, churches had tables at the back of them to to give out food to the poor each week, and there were, you know, routine calendars of giving out food and giving giving it there and so forth. Uh, I mean, it was it was a, a much more extensive. There's a Polish historian called Geremek who's who's who's, who's uh, catalogued this. It was a much more extensive form of charity than than uh, is generally thought uh, believed. Uh, post that uh, reformation spin and and part of that that reformation spin or i mean maybe it's not part of the the spin at the time because a lot of that as you point out was largely sort of uh, very pointed kind of protestant crowing uh, designed to to do down uh, catholicism but but later on it seems part of it was uh, saying that that marked a point at which there was a secular turn in philanthropy and and if you're sort of saying that's not necessarily true and that some of those elements were in place beforehand it, it seems as though also afterwards there are potentially important historical junctures like I mean you detail the importance of uh, the kind of rise of humanism and um, I wondered what I wanted to ask you about actually is what you think the impact of the enlightenment was because it seems to me that's a that's a really important point in terms of understandings of poverty because you start to see 
for the first time, as far as I can tell, the idea that poverty is a problem that has a solution rather than something that is kind of inherent within society and must be dealt with through methods like, um, you know, charitable redistribution. Do you think that kind of marks quite an important turn? Yeah, the Enlightenment with that with that shift in perspective to to reason and to science was 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 quite crucial there. And the other important thing about the uh, uh, Enlightenment, which kind of slightly pulls against that, is that uh, the, the the notion of philanthropy entered into English at that point came over from 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 the continent. Um, and uh, the first man in in um, in England to be called a philanthropist wasn't someone who gave away large amounts of money. Uh, it was John Howard, the prison reformer. We now remember him in, in the name of the Howard League for Penal Reform. But he spent his whole life, dedicated his whole life to, to uh, uh, improving the conditions in, in prisons in England and then throughout the whole of Europe. And um, he, uh, and, uh, another, another just after him was William Wilberforce, the anti-slaver. Uh, these were the kind of people who were called philanthropists in those days. And, and their philanthropy was driven by something which was, um, they, they, they called themselves men of feeling. And there was a kind of cult of sensibility and the notion that uh, by analyzing your emotional responses to things like poverty, uh, you, would, you would find ways forward. And, and they had a kind of personal zeal often inspired by an evangelical Christianity, which, which made them you know, not give up. I mean, if you look at the, the number of bills that Wilberforce put forward to uh, Parliament uh, on slavery, I mean, there, there must have been nine or 10 before he actually got one through. He was just so persistent. And the, the, uh, the, this idea that personal zeal and personal mission uh, was, was really important in philanthropy. Uh, was 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 something which which was a new departure because it kind of re-established the importance of 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 the personal, uh, but it it was also this philanthropist as activist. And I say in the book, you know, if you just follow that tradition through, you end up with Angelina Jolie or Bob Geldof or Bodo or today Marcus Rashford. You know, these are people who are using their philanthropy as a form of what I call agitator philanthropists rather than donor philanthropists, although almost all those figures have made donations too. Yeah, I think, and I think that that uh, sort of uh, lineage that you draw there between people like Howard and Wilberforce and, and today's kind of celebrity philanthropists is really interesting. I think both because there's often, uh, you know, a sort of a reasonable level of kind of scepticism towards celebrity philanthropy and activism of that kind. Although I would say not in the case of Marcus Rashford. I think most people kind of are very kind of impressed by what he's managed to to do. Oh, just um, wait, you know, they'll 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 get round to turning oh, on yes, Marcus I'm, Rashford I'm sure they <laughs> because they always they always do. There's a lot of cynicism about about ph philanthropists in general, but and particularly about celebrity philanthropists. Um, and uh, it, it's it's very interesting. Beth Breeze, who runs the philanthropy centre down at the University of Kent, has an interesting line. She says, uh, you know, if someone gives a uh, hundred pounds to a charity, you think, oh, the man next door, you think that's really generous of him. But if, if he gives a hundred million pounds, you think, oh, yes, what's he up to? Uh, it's, it's obviously some kind of tax dodge. Uh, there's this kind of suspicion of of philanthropy and it, and it spills over to celebrity philanthropy oh bob geldof he's just because he's a failed pop star and he needs to sell records and i i think what it is it's a kind of transference uh it, it it's actually about how people feel about the rich in this increasingly unequal globalized world uh and 
philanthropists are the kind of easy targets. They, they sit up and draw attention to themselves by their philanthropy. And people can kind of, it's like a lightning conductor, you know, all the uh, animus against the rich that people have uh, is kind of, uh, you know, electrified down the, the, the lightning conductor of the poor old philanthropist. So I think, I think there is definitely a cynicism uh, about philanthropy, which, which a lot of the modern media encourages. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, that's right. It's a, an interesting question in, in itself as to whether, you know, because there's definitely the argument that like, the, you know, this is misguided because the, the people at that level of wealth who are the ones who are giving are the ones that we shouldn't be, you know, uh, castigating. Actually, it's the ones who aren't giving anything that we should be criticising. But I guess... Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the ones who aren't giving are the vast majority. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, if you look at these statistics on the mega rich and what they give, you know, they're, they're pretty shocking. They're actually, a lot of them are... Uh, uh, are a lot less generous than the, the, the man in the street putting his hand in his pocket for children in need. I guess the, the flip side um, that I've heard put forward is that those who are giving are, um, as, as best to a, a kind of an, an acute critic would say, actually, no, they are the proper focus of criticism because in doing philanthropy, they are sort of doing just enough to... Uh, to kind of justify their position and the inequality that's led to it and therefore making it kind of harder to push for the sort of necessary structural reform that is uh, that is required. So I can see to how to some kind of critics from uh, a relatively kind of uh, extreme viewpoint, um, they actually there is an argument that sort of those who are giving are more problematic in some ways than those who aren't. But um, I mean that argument goes, but that I mean that that, that reminds me of being at university in 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 the seventies with with all the kind of you know the, the revolutionary sixties socialism and uh, and the, the the tension between that and people who were gradualist incrementalists. It's just yeah. a question of do you think. Uh, we shouldn't do any uh, any good at all uh, until we can make everything perfect. Or should we just uh, chip away and do bits and pieces here and there and make the world a little bit of a better place? And uh, I, I'm definitely in the latter camp. Uh, but I think a lot of the uh, academic critics of philanthropy are, um, you know, with a few notable exceptions, are, are in the former camp. They're kind of revolutionary structuralists, uh, you know, perfectionists. I think I mean I think that's true, and I I feel as though that tension between uh, kind of idealism and, and some elements of pragmatism is is quite a big one at the moment within philanthropy. As you say, it's kind of rather than picking up on the the critical the the reasons to criticize it and saying oh well let's not just bother until we can uh, fundamentally kind of transform society. Yeah, I mean I can't remember the quote, but Burke said something like nobody made a greater mistake than the person who. Uh, said he couldn't he wouldn't do little because he couldn't do everything yeah yeah that's I mean that's that's exactly it isn't it and actually it's kind of pragmatically should we get on with what we can do now and even if the end goal is that sort of structural reform that that we might share with with those who uh who have that as an aim um I just want to to pick up on a couple of things about kind of themes in in the history um uh, one uh, is to pick up, I think, again, because it feels very relevant at the moment. One one kind of debate that's always been there in philanthropy, I think, to me, is about the extent to which the, the nature of wealth creation um, affects the legitimacy of giving money away. And I'm thinking here particularly of the kind of debates that always seem to come around whether some donations are tainted in some sense and actually whether it's kind of bad money and whether you can do good with that bad money or whether it's better for that money to go towards charitable or philanthropic causes and therefore be cleansed in some sense and it's kind of we're seeing it at the moment I think in contemporary examples like the Sacklers or the money that um, Jeffrey um, Epstein gave to MIT but also 
a lot of that debate at the moment about money that's historically linked to the profits of slavery. Um, so it feels like this is a very timely thing to be thinking through for philanthropy. Can you just say a bit about kind of how that has run through the, the history um, that you found? Well, at the, uh, you know, at the risk of sounding, uh, sounding like a contemporary politician, I think there are three tiers here. Um, uh, and we've already touched on it in a little way. You've got, you've got the very rich, uh, you've got the rich who do philanthropy, and, and then you've got the rest. Um, and uh, as I've outlined, I think the, the rich who do philanthropy are, are actually, uh, on balance, better than the rich who don't do philanthropy. And uh, oh, co controversial though it would be uh, to say so, I think if we look at the Colston statue uh, um, episode in, in Bristol, um, fine to remove the statue of, of Colston because he made his money from the slave trade, but uh, we are letting off, in terms of opprobrium, the... Uh, uh, the slave traders from Bristol who didn't give any money to philanthropy. And again, it's that uh, transference. It's the idea that you can transfer to the to the philanthropist the sins of, 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 of the rest of his uh, uh, oppressive uh, capitalist class. Um, and I, I think uh, you, you, the three tiers are you can take a purist position. I mean, um, uh, Kant said something like... Um, uh, individuals can't claim to be beneficent when their wealth is a product of direct or indirect injustice. And, and I think there's, a, there's a, a book by Rob Reich, the contemporary philosopher, in which he, he gives a kind of uh, a modern version of that. He says, if I steal your wallet and decide to denote its contents for a good cause, uh, rather than uh, using it to buy things for myself, uh, that doesn't actually excuse the initial theft. Uh, that, uh, I think, is a pretty non-negotiable um, uh, situation. When Carnegie was, was giving, uh, there was a, a critic called uh, William uh, Jewett Tucker who said, uh, I can conceive of no greater mistake uh, to society and to religion than to try and make charity do the work of justice. So, so you've got that, that, that I mean, those, those are all import, important principles. But then I would, you know, I, 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 I would go with, with Aristotle in, in thinking about uh, proportion here. I mean, there are some things which are beyond the pale um, and which, you, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't take money from, from, from doing something utterly reprehensible and, and try and whitewash your conscience with it. But there are also um, areas which are more grey uh, um, what, what the philosopher Gillian Rose called uh, the broken middle. Uh, and she, she, she's talking about justice and she talks about a good enough justice. We can end up with good enough justice, which isn't perfect, but which will, which will be serviceable. And I think we can have good enough philanthropy uh, in that sense too. So there will be situations in which, uh, yes, it may be um, reputation laundering uh, for a rich person to give uh, uh, money to a good cause, but the, the, there will be situations in which that's still better than not doing it, um, uh, and there will be other situations in which no, the the the, the money was accrued in such a heinous way that you, you can't you can't whitewash it in in any way. So again, it's not a black and white position; uh, it's about proportion. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you're right there to draw, you know, an important distinction, I think that often gets missed in the discussion of kind of tainted donations or sources of wealth between 
examples where you're talking about clearly criminal behavior or the specific way in which wealth has been created that's problematic and between more kind of structural critiques of the the entire system of kind of capitalism within which wealth is possible because i think those take you down two different roads yeah and you've got to scrutinize the detail if you look at the sacklers uh, you know that they, they, they were targeted their philanthropy was was targeted by campaigners against uh, the uh, opioid um, addiction uh, which had killed 200,000 people in 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 the US and uh, and and the sacklers owned the uh, the company which made uh, one of the worst uh, uh, examples of this drug oxycontin um, but it, when you drill down on it the, uh, the 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 Sacklers w- family wasn't wasn't a unit. Uh, there were different branches of it, and uh, some of the philanthropy was given with with money which was made by uh, the family's pharmaceutical company from from uh, um, marketing Valium in in a previous era, and others yes were involved in in the OxyContin um, scandal. Uh, so. You know, it, it seems to me to make it's worthwhile making a distinction. Wh- where has this money come from? Which bit of it is can we legitimately take? Which bit of it do we do we want to reject? Um, it's the devil's always in the detail. And, and I, I certainly I mean, I think there's a sort of pragmatic point as well, isn't there? That I think goes to something um, Bernard Shaw says about the, the idea that uh, actually uh, individual tainted donation or sort of tainted donations are a kind of individualist fantasy because actually everything is so interconnected that how do you possibly distinguish between money that was made that you know at some point can be linked to tobacco or arms or fossil fuels or whatever and and other elements of money i mean there's no such thing as genuinely clean money which perhaps is a slightly kind of cynical way of looking at it but actually the more that you start to question the structures within which money's made it becomes very difficult to find anything that's genuinely uh, pure yeah and people have raised that now i mean that is a real issue people consider it whereas in the past you know when people were asked about i can't remember it was, it was general booth uh, the salvation yes, army yeah, yeah, yeah. who said you know the trouble with tainted money is taint enough of it taint enough of it um, <laughs> you know we've gone past that now and we're in an era where where people do want to scrutinize this but i would suggest that they need to scrutinize it carefully and in detail rather than uh, and making kind of blanket um sweeping uh, generalizations and i want to come on to to some of the the bits of the book that are kind of uh build on the history but are more kind of focused on um on the here and now and kind of what's happening in in contemporary philanthropy um and a, a big kind of centerpiece of the book um as far as you know i see it is the distinction you draw that builds on that history but is part of your kind of prescription for how philanthropy might need to kind of change in the future between what you call strategic philanthropy and reciprocal philanthropy. And you've already kind of talked about that a bit in the context of the history, but perhaps you could just explain that distinction and why you think it's an important one for philanthropy now. Well, uh, well, let's go back to Andrew Carnegie, who pretty much set the template for philanthropic giving in the uh, in the 20th century. And it, it pretty much persists through to today. I mean, he he had this notion that philanthropists know best and that they should decide what what things should be spent on. And he shifted money, uh, his money into things like infrastructure, arts, cultural infrastructure. He built 3000 libraries around the world and concert halls and parks and art galleries and a whole range of things. And and his shift was uh, part of his shift was towards the idea that you don't give money to the poor uh, uh, and it's all right for me to be a rapacious capitalist and 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 to cut the wages of my workers 
to the bone and to the point where they they go on strikes and then you have to send in private armies and kill some of them yeah that's okay as long as you're giving money away well obviously it's not all right to send private armies in to kill people in order to build up more philanthropic money to 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 give away but but what what carnegie said he was doing was building ladders on which the aspiring could rise and so he wanted we're back to the deserving and the undeserving poor the deserving poor would use these ladders to better themselves and uh, um uh, and, and 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 rise in the world now uh that's a questionable vision in 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 lots of ways which we won't go into here but the key point is who decides how the money should be spent and and carnegie's answer is the rich decide because they're superior to the poor and uh, that that it, it, idea of the strategic philanthropy the uh i have a vision i decide i decide how to implement it i set up a foundation i bring business methods to play and to bear on on philanthropy that's pretty much part of the uh the philanthropic capitalist model which we see we see uh in 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 action in the big big givers today they are people who have made money in 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 different ways to Carnegie, he was a steel magnet, but a lot of these people are high-tech uh, digital uh, titans. And they have thought, well, you know, I've made all this money through my acumen and my vision and my skill. Uh, and so I should apply those qualities to deciding how uh, it should be distributed. And if we look at the, you know, the people like Bill Gates and um, Mark Zuckerberg have made big errors in the way that they've spent money on, particularly on, on, on US education, and they've had to correct them. So. That raises the question, who, who decides how to spend the money and who, who, who pays for, for the problems that are created by, by the wrong decision? You know, for a philanthropist to, to pull out of a, um, a big educational project and waste two billion dollars, as Bill Gates did, uh, you know, that's, that's just a failed project to a man with his wealth. But to the kids in the, in the, uh, in the school, you know, the, those, are, those are lost uh, or impaired years of education. So uh, that, 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 that the model of, of uh, data-driven, uh, very metrics-obsessed, um, strategic philanthropy, which is, is about bang for buck and uh, the, the, the characteristics that we see of, of so much big contemporary philanthropy has got this huge downside. It's obviously got a huge upside. So don't get me wrong. I mean, Bill Gates has vaccinated 2.5 billion children and he's Polio is eradicated because of him. He's made, he saved millions of lives. There's a huge upside to strategic philanthropy, but there's also this downside. It's got a blind side. And what you see, if you go back to the Hebrew tradition and you trace it through the Enlightenment, you go through people like Octavia Hill in the, uh, the Victorian era, George Cadbury with his model uh, villages, uh, his enlightened capitalism, and his idea that, that uh, philanthropy should change the way you do business not the modern philanthropic capitalist idea that business should change the way you do philanthropy. If you go back and you look through that, 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 that thread uh, and bring it through to the modern world, and there are philanthropists who understand this and who, who uh, um, listen. Uh, my main criticism of the philanthropic capitalists is that they don't listen. They think they know what the answer is. Uh, they think that you know, the poor are a problem to be solved rather than people who might have a view and, and might have a, a, a more insightful view as you see with something like the Grameen Bank, um, you know, the Grameen Bank uh, worked because it was poor people's idea on how how it should um, pressure them to uh, to change their lives. You give money to 
uh, a group of people. They give it to one of their number uh, who spent it in whatever way. And then he has to repay it uh, so that the next person can uh, can borrow the same money and do improve their life. And and uh, if the woman who's waiting for 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 the money uh, sees that the man who bought who had the money initially doesn't um, isn't spending it right, she puts pressure on him through the group, social pressure. Um, and uh, that's a solution which came up from the grassroots. So when you look at uh, the grassroots two way philanthropy, as opposed to the strategic top down philanthropy, uh, and I've called these uh, uh, reciprocal versus strategic in, in the book, uh, you see that a way of celebrating the successes, uh, the precision, the focus of strategic philanthropy, but also uh, making good uh, its failings through uh, the, the, the reciprocal philanthropy, which, which is more two-way, more about mutual respect, more about listening, more about partnership. Yeah, and I, I think, I mean, it definitely that that distinction and the, the arguments behind it and the way you link it to the history, I think, plays into lots of debates and developments that are going on at the moment in philanthropy. I think around things like the interest in participatory mo models of grant making. And also, I think what we've seen during the pandemic in terms of the upsurge of interest in mutual aid approaches rather than kind of traditional charitable approaches as well, because I think there's this, uh, as you say, the sort of the the sense that actually... Uh, shifting towards models in which decision-making power is put in the hands of the people who are uh, actually the ones who would be traditionally in kind of in receipt of that money um, and allowing them to make decisions about the issues that affect their own lives feels uh, better than that that top-down approach. Yeah, and, and my, my, my point is not just that it's kind of philosophically better or morally better, it actually, pragmatically, it works better. Yeah. You get better solutions if you listen to people who, who are affected by the problem uh, and who can say, you know, that won't work. Why don't we try this? And uh, and there's a two-way uh, conversation between uh, the, the, the the giver and the receiver. Um, it, 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 it actually produces a better result. And I think that's, yeah, and again, I think you make this point in the book, there's... There are people for whom the shift towards empowering, you know, those in receipt of the money is more driven by a kind of ideological belief that that's the right thing to do. But there are others who are engaging with things like direct cash transfers, where it's not, I don't think they're even that bothered about it. It's just that on paper, economically, it produces better outcomes, and that's why they're doing it. So there's kind of, there's different motivations for essentially kind of moving towards the same end. So yeah, direct cash transfers is something I, I, I look at in the book. Um, and they are phenomena which which appeal to both the strategic philanthropists because they work better and to the reciprocal philanthropist because they, they pay respect to the uh, to the people who are, who are on the ground. And what I'm looking for in the book is not a switch from strategic philanthropy to reciprocal philanthropy. I'm looking for them to to balance one another better and to improve philanthropy uh, generally. Uh, philanthropy has got has, has got very efficient and very hard edged, uh, but it's it's lost its soul. It seems to be, uh, and um, if we can restore that, if 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 we just make some of these changes to to right the balance in this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Uh, I want to, I'm aware that we're sort of uh, in danger of running long because I could talk about all these things for hours rather than uh, one hour. But um, I just want to come on, given that we're talking on the day, um, well, after the US election, although it's still very unclear what will happen in the outcome of that. Um, it, it feels pertinent to to mention one of the other big themes that comes up in the book, which is about the relationship between philanthropy and democracy. And certainly in recent years, there's been quite a lot of critique, certainly from the US uh, primarily, about the, the extent to which philanthropy can act as a sort of anti-democratic force or undermine democracy by putting too much power in the hands of those who have large amounts of wealth to direct public debate and, and also the, the shape of public policy. But then it seems to me the flip side is that philanthropy has always played a role within a healthy democracy in terms of advocacy and campaigning for social change, often in opposition to the status quo or public opinion of the day. Do, do you think that that is a, a tension that, that history has anything to, to tell us about? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think that obviously, uh, if you're talking about compatibility of philanthropy and democracy, then uh, history only teaches us anything about that uh, from the advent of democracy, because a lot of the uh, history of philanthropy is pre-democratic, but it still tells you things about the innate power relationship between uh, the wealthy and 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 the, and the rest of society. Um, I think if you if you look at uh, to say the philanthropy of the of the of the Koch brothers, uh, they financed lots of. Uh, right-wing universities and uh, uh, climate change denying academics and, and think tanks uh, and that's in pursuit of a vision which uh, wants a more laissez-faire market uh, unregulated uh, kind of capitalism. Um, now uh, there are people who call that bad philanthropy. I find it hard to to talk about bad and good philanthropy because all the arguments against bad philanthropy would also apply against good philanthropy if you just shifted your political perspective. But clearly there, there is something um, about the, the kind of thing that the Koch brothers do, which uh, is um, in, in tension with a lot of public policy. Now in, in the States at the moment, where, as you say, we're speaking on the day, we don't know whether Trump or Biden, uh, Biden have, have won. Um, and that tells you something in itself, that when you've got a society which is riven, like uh, the contemporary US is, and, and with Brexit, certainly the UK is, uh, it, it's very hard to talk about uh, democracy and the will of the people when the will of the people is so clearly split and divergent. Um, so you've got, you've got people like the Koch brothers fueling a, a form of philanthropy which half the population would say uh, is deeply undemocratic. Uh, what's the alternative to that? If you put political constraints on it, they would apply to you know, George Soros's work on uh, open democracy and increasing transparency and accountability in, in, uh, and, and, and funding groups which challenge totalitarian governments. So do we want a kind of regime which outlaws any kind of uh, philanthropy which intervenes in the, in the political sphere in any way. I would say not. Uh, and and the, the kind of philanthropy we don't like um, is just the price we have to pay for the kind of philanthropy we do like. Because philanthropy is really important to challenge um, government. It, it's, 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 it operates in the civil society sphere. It's not the market. It's not government. It can, at its best, 
bolster all the little platoons, as Bert called them, which um, which uh, uh, mediate between the individual and the state. Everything from um, churches and trade unions to uh, the local golf club and uh, local photography society, anything which pe where people band together and can have a voice and can lean on democratic institutions to, uh, to make their influence felt against the, the influence of, of, the, of, of the rich and the powerful uh, seems to me to be useful. And then when, um, well, not useful, it seems to me to be essential in, in a free society. And when um, uh, philanthropy um, funds that kind of activity, then I think it's actually strengthening democracy. And one of the things that I uh, say in the book about what, for a better word, you might call liberal philanthropists, as I think from conservative ones, is conservative philanthropists understand much more about shifting the Overton window, the, the, the window of acceptable political debate. You know, some things can be talked about and some things everybody just says, oh no, that's obviously not right. Uh, if you can shift the window so that things which were not right are suddenly uh, discussable, uh, which is what the, the right-wing philanthropists have done in the States, um, the, 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 the liberal progressive philanthropists tend not to dedicate themselves to that kind of structural advocacy kind of work. They, they tend much more to address the symptoms rather than the causes. And, um, and one of the things that I think uh, philanthropists of that political bent need to do is to, is to think about advocacy and um, funding those kind of um, areas of intellectual and social shift rather than just addressing the symptoms of poverty. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And it's, I mean, certainly it was a conversation I was having earlier this week. And I think um, there's a, a growing sense that actually, you know, those who are interested in sort of uh, pushing, pro pushing progressive or liberal issues have a lot to learn from the example of conservative philanthropy in the US. And, and one of the things I've heard said from people on the liberal side is actually, there's a, you know it's quite a debate at the moment in the world of philanthropy about whether or not a focus on impact and metrics are a good thing because I think you know as we had the kind of philanthropic capitalist paradigm over the last few years it was very heavily skewed in that direction of you've got to measure everything and set these kind of you know the, the ability to kind of measure and get metrics and on impact is very important and people pushing back on that and saying actually that that is kind of uh, codifying putting all the power in the hands of the donor in very problematic ways and not only that it actually sort of limits your effectiveness because you only then the activity tends towards that which is measured and actually a lot of the conservative philanthropists who were giving in a way that was supposed to influence that long-term battle of ideas were much more flexible and weren't really asking for that they were just giving money as you say to kind of think tanks and just to develop a kind of ecosystem of narratives that, that could potentially over the long term shift that Overton window, but they were giving in such a way they weren't asking for evidence of impact over one, two or three years. They were just sort of trusting that, that it was worth giving that money. And actually, yeah, but they were very selective in who they gave the money to. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the universities had to take on professors on tenure. Uh, after they'd been there for 10 years on a, on a Koch Brothers funded institute. And so you ended up with, with, uh, university professors institutionalized who had been handpicked as it were by uh, by right-wing philanthropists mm. so that you know it's it, it's it's not just the, the, they're not just being yes they don't measure impact in the same way and they're much more 
a long-term, they've got much more of a long-term vision uh, than some of the progressive philanthropists, um, but uh, the, the, they're still very controlling in a different kind of way. So it's about, it's about control and, um, and philanthropy, you know, philanthropists are prepared to give away power, but they're not, uh, philanthropists are prepared to give away money, but they're not prepared to give away power. Uh, if you support uh, people on the ground, um, I mean, one of the interesting things about Trevor Pears, who, who financed the first couple of years research on my book, is that he, he didn't have a, any kind of veto over what I said. He's just, you know, we had a series of conversations about it. And he said, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'm prepared to to uh, to, to trust you in, in effect and, and get on with it. And um, uh, that kind of open mindedness uh, and um, risk taking. Is, is is part of philanthropy in, in 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 lots of ways and you know you may give you may give money to a community organization or a parent teacher association or you know an environmental human rights group or whatever and it you know it may turn around and start criticizing your you know the the, the organization you draw your money from to make your philanthropy but if you if you if you are prepared to take that risk which is about a transfer of power as well as as cash um then then you can open up uh, this whole area in, in in a way which which philanthropists uh, haven't done. I mean, the, uh, David Callahan of the, the Inside Philanthropy website has got an interesting phrase uh, in his book, The Givers. Uh, he talks about uh, uh, socially concerned philanthropists are addressing problems which um, uh, you know, the, which, which like you know allowing a few people to exit uh, from from poverty by giving them bursaries to go to a college whatever that's fine but it leaves countless others stuck in in underperforming workplaces or schools or whatever um and uh if you if you run a food bank um to to, to help poor people in, in, in who are hungry um that's fine but if if you don't affect the government policy which makes them hungry then you are in callahan's phrase nurturing saplings while the forest is being clear cut. So I think some of that more strategic vision of, of philanthropy needs to, needs to be injected into the, 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 the liberal progressive uh, philanthropy, which is it's lacking at the moment. Yeah, and it's um, it's really interesting. Yeah, you say that's about the the idea of I mean, your example of Trevor Pears there, and kind of the the extent to which he was kind of happy to take that that potential risk. Because I think in in what we're saying about the importance of shifting power as well as financial resources in philanthropy that does seem to me to be a sticking point because actually the 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 risk i mean not only that somebody might turn around and criticize you but that they they choose to spend money on things that are not the same as that you as a donor would or that they you know choose solutions for themselves that you think are actively worse than the ones you would have chosen are you happy to take that kind of risk um as part of the price of recognizing that power needs to be shifted and i think for a lot of donors that's very difficult because you know they they're unwilling to do that because either because they think they know best or because you know it's just not part of their nature philanthropists have have the have the power to do that they have the power to take risks and do things that governments and charities which are accountable to the public uh don't don't have the, the i remember from my days in international development a very good illustration uh, an african village uh, where the aid workers arrived and said, you know, we we we, we can help you uh, in this village. Uh, would you like a new school, or would you like uh, um, a new clinic, or, or do you do you need uh, well digging or whatever? 
And the village elders said, oh, well, we'll go and discuss it. And they came back and they said, uh, we'd like a new cemetery. And uh, the aid workers said, oh, that's not part of our development brief. You can't have a cemetery. Well, what, what else would you like? Here's the list of things you can have. And the elders went off and discussed it. And they came back and said, if we can't have a graveyard, we don't want anything. Thank you. And uh, I remember telling this story to Bob Geldof, who uh, had a really interesting parallel of it. At, uh, on the 20th, 25th anniversary of Live Aid, he went back to Ethiopia uh, and I went with him. And um, uh, we were looking in Coram at the, where the camp had been, where, where, where the famous film of Michael Burke was filmed of the, of the, the dawn breaking over this biblical scene of, of destitution and horror. And uh, we met some of the people who, who had survived that and they were all very, very pleased and showing us their, their you know, their little secondhand uh, Jeep that they'd bought to do this. And, and, and it was very, very uplifting. And uh, um, they, uh, they said exactly the same thing to Geldof. They, they said, our lives are great now. We don't need anything. Well, the, we do need one thing, but nobody will give it to us. <clears throat> and he said, what is it? And he said, we want a, we want a fence around uh, the graveyard because there were so many people buried here um, and uh, cows just graze over the, over the dead. Uh, we know where the Muslim dead were. We know where the Christian dead were, but that's all. Uh, and we want a fence to, to, to keep the animals off. And Geldof said, all right, well, you, we, we still got some money left from Band-Aid because the, the, the record royalties keep rolling in. And he said, we'll build you a fence. And um, they were so delighted, they, they, they couldn't have been more thrilled about it. And it was quite a humbling experience for Gildo because he, he expected them to, to be kind of thanking him for all the work that he'd done in the past. And, and they were all just focused on this one issue, which wasn't his issue, but it was their issue. And he had the humility to say, OK, well, that's, if that's what you want, that's what we'll do. We've got money which, which we can do within the remit of the Band-Aid Trust uh, to do that. Uh, because they have got the, the 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 philanthropic flexibility, which would be lacking, you know, if 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 Christian Aid or Capod had gone up and said, uh, uh, "Can we build a fence around?" Uh, you know, the public would have said, "That you're wasting money on a fence." So there's that uh, that kind of thing that makes people's lives better. Um, philanthropy can do that. Um, the 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 Pope Benedict said something really interesting once. Uh, talking about justice and just society, he said, no matter how just a society is, it won't eliminate loneliness. The only thing that can deal with loneliness is love. So there are things that love can do that justice can't do. And there are things that justice has to do uh, on its own, but you, but you need them both. And, and philanthropy has got the, the breadth of vision to, uh, uh, to allow that and to and and, and to uh, to nurture it uh, in in a way which which other aspects of society can't. So there are things about philanthropy which which are you know definitely unique and special and need to be celebrated and 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 nurtured. Um, and uh, what I've tried to do in this book is to highlight the good points of philanthropy, illustrate the downsides, and to show ways in which the good points can be made better and the downsides can be wiped away. 
I'm aware that we're in danger of running long. So I just had one thing I wanted to pick up on there, particularly as you mentioned um, uh, Pope Benedict there. Um, one of the the themes that, that sort of inevitably runs throughout the book, I think, because you're looking at the history of philanthropy is around the role of religion and kind of religious thought and religious teaching, because actually for a very long part of the history, it's impossible to, to disentwine the two. Um, and I just wondered what your perception was of the relationship uh, in the modern context between philanthropy and religion um, and kind of the extent to which religious teaching or belief or uh, kind of uh, habit or culture kind of still informs a lot of philanthropy or, you know, or whether you feel that there are things from religious teaching that could inform secular approaches to philanthropy in a useful way. One of the things that strikes you coming to philanthropy anew from the outside is that so much philanthropy is motivated by individuals who have a particular uh, driving force. You know, people give to cancer relief because their, their mother uh, died of that disease or people uh, give to a, a blind charity because they're afraid of going blind themselves. It, it grows out of personal experience. And a lot of personal experience of philanthropists grows out of their religious position. Um, if you look at um, uh, the history of uh, uh, Jewish philanthropy, uh, it's it's hugely disproportionate. The amount that uh, Jews give uh, to the rest of society compared to their relative size, uh, they're, they're a very generous community. And interestingly, when you look at the statistics, religious Jews give more than secular Jews. Uh, religion is definitely a motivating factor. There's, a, there's an interesting story in the book about uh, Jonathan Ruffer, the financier, his wealth manager. I mean, man of deals in billions in the city. Uh, he talks about, uh, he, he, he uh, had a background as an evangelical Christian, but interestingly, he went to a Catholic retreat centre uh, in Wales. And one, it was a silent retreat, but uh, in the evening, you, uh, you, you can talk to your spiritual director for, for uh, half an hour or so. Uh, and in the evening, there was this uh, uh, religious service and it was announced afterwards that two of the members of the community was ill. Father Joseph had had a heart attack and been taken off the hospital. And Maria in the kitchens had had a funny turn and she'd also been taken off the hospital. So the following night, there was a long report on how Father Joseph was doing in hospital, but no, no mention at all of Maria in the kitchen. So Ruffer said to uh, his spiritual director the next morning, what happened with Maria? And he had no idea. Uh, she just worked in the kitchen. It was like she didn't matter very much. And, and um, Ruffer went into the chapel and, and, and prayed and said, Lord, who will fight for the little person? And it's a very dangerous question to ask because there's only one answer. The answer is you. And he went off and uh, changed his, his uh, life as a financier. Uh, he came... Uh, top of the Sunday Times giving list in 2019 because he gave away so much money that year. He's built a huge regeneration project in the part of the northeast where he uh, uh, was originally from. Um, that kind of uh, motivation coming out of a religious impulse is something that uh, I found time and time and time again uh, researching the history of philanthropy and, and, and modern philanthropists. Religion is, is a key driver of it. Now, there are people for whom religion isn't important. Uh, Robert Owen, the, uh, uh, who started the factories at New Lanark, uh, where he um, 
improved the working conditions of the people and, and built schools for their children and a whole range of, of, of things. Uh, he, he lost his faith at the age of 10, he says, uh, but he was very much governed by the enlightenment teachings of, of, of uh, philosophers like Rousseau, the idea that if you can make a, um, if you can change people's environment, you will change people. You will improve them by changing the, the place. It's a kind of doctrine of human perfectibility. You see that in 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 philanthropy as well, uh, and it's not religious. Although you know, a historian like Tom Holland would say that all of those cultural um, influences actually date back to being part of a religious culture. That you know, his book Dominion is all about that, but. That there are people today uh, who have no religious uh, impulse at all, but they are growing out of um, a, a culture which sees value in 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 compassion and care for the for the needs of others. And uh, I think if the if if you took religion away from philanthropy, it, it would be much much reduced. Yeah, no, it's really interesting viewpoint. I think it's something that comes very clearly out of the book and reading it as someone, you know, myself and not particularly a person of faith. It's it's really kind of, uh, you know, I feel like I learned a lot about that that perspective, both in the history and in kind of thinking about contemporary philanthropy. It's really interesting that you picked that up because I deliberately um, chose not to highlight that or underscore that in the book it's there all the all the way through you this person's a christian that person's jewish this person is giving uh, out of uh, out of the injunctions of their faith um you know and it's true of sikhs hindus it's it's not just one religion it's two religions in general but i didn't kind of have a, a theme of that it just it it's just there underlying in the book so it's not it's not a book for religious people uh it, it, but it, it it's 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 a book which tries to um open people's eyes to the way that other people are doing things and and to promote a kind of self consciousness amongst philanthropists and others um to say oh that he does it this way he does it that way i do it this way maybe i could if i changed a bit and did it that way maybe it would be better so it's about kind of uh openness of philanthropists philanthropy professionals but society more more generally we talked about the general public being cynical and uh, the media being cynical opinion formers policymakers politicians they all need to know a bit more about how philanthropy works and if the if there is that kind of more transparent uh, scrutiny of philanthropy in 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 society in general uh, I think philanthropy will improve yeah here here I would heartily uh, concur with that um, listen it just remains to say uh, thanks ever so much for finding the time to come on the podcast Paul it's been an absolute pleasure to get a chance to have such a, a detailed uh, chat and um, before I let you go is there anything you want to kind of direct people's attention to um, related to the book in terms of um, you know when it's being published in the US or any kind of associated uh, things that you've got coming up? I mean, I'm doing something at the LSE, something at the Blavatnik School of... Go the LSE is about philanthropy and democracy. The Blavatnik School of Government, I'm doing something about uh, international development and democracy. The, at the RSA, I'm doing something with, with Bob Geldof and uh, Fran Perrin of the Sainsbury Empire on business uh, uh, and philanthropy and celebrity philanthropy. Uh, I've got lots of, you know, there's so many different aspects in the mm. book uh, and I'm spin trying to spin them all off in different ways. And the British Library are very generously giving me a big launch uh, the day after the book comes out in America, which is the 18th of 
November, it comes out on the 17th, uh, in which we've got a panel of three philanthropists, uh, Eliza Manning and Buller from the Welcome Foundation, um, Helen Gale from the uh, Chicago Community uh, uh, Organization, and Jonathan Ruffer, who we've mentioned. Mm. Um, they're going to have a discussion, um, and I'm doing a big online exhibition for the British Library uh, using their uh, rare documents that I've cited in the book, uh, and um, talking about the history of philanthropy through um, these treasures that are in the British Library, some of which are just amazing documents. Uh, I spent uh, 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 I spent so long um, re-researching stuff, reading this stuff that I thought, oh, if it was a second edition of the book, I can put this in. I can put this in. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I don't know how useful all of that is for your podcast because no, it's it's well, I'll I'll put links to to the various things that that are in terms of events and everything in the show notes so people can follow those and and similarly I'll put lots of links to to things that relate to stuff that we've um, discussed in there as well so people can follow that up. But other than that, it just remains to say thanks ever so much. Well, thank you. It's been really really interesting to uh, to, to 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 discuss the subject uh, with somebody who knows as much as you do. <laughs> Okay, great. Well, my thanks again to Paul for finding the time to come on the podcast. Um, it was great to have the chance to talk to him. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. I certainly did. Um, I'll put links in the show notes to Paul's book and some of the events that he mentioned and also to other things that I and other people have done that are relevant to the topics we talked about. If you're interested more broadly in issues around philanthropy and civil society, do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis or at Philiteracy. If you want stuff more on the history or on kind of uh, academic writing about philanthropy, if you've got ideas for other people I could speak to or topics that I could explore on the podcast, uh, drop us a line at givingthought at cafonline.org. Other than that, just like, subscribe, tell all your friends about the podcast, give us a nice review on iTunes or wherever you get these things, and I'll see you next time. Bye!